The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. All right, we're looking in Hebrews uh, 12, 1 to 17. And uh, just say before I read this passage that um, to help us kind of read it correctly, I think there's a lot today when you hear about uh, counseling and how do we help people, so much comes back to our identity in Christ. Who are you, right? And we counsel people to preach the gospel to themselves, remind themselves of who you are in Christ, that you're a child of God, and you were once a prisoner of sin, and now you're princes and princesses in Christ, and that we're in Christ, we're a new creation, and reconciled, ransomed, redeemed, restored, dearly loved, on and on. And those are excellent and essential, but there's something missing. And that little something is something of a problem. We tend to see ourselves um, not as the people of God, as essential to our identity. Did you catch what we read about Moses this morning? It said he chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God. It never says in Scripture with the person of God. It's the people of God. And we even worked on that this week in our Vacation Bible School, that we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. And then the command in in Psalm 95 is plural. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. And so when we think about who we are and our identity, let's put the big rock in as well, that we are the people of God. Two of the metaphors that describe the people of God is the body of Christ and living stones that make up the temple, a spiritual temple. Both of those metaphors connect us to a larger whole that none of us are in and of ourselves, right? And that's a beautiful thing. A stone is not just a stone. It's a living stone and it's part of a spiritual building of a temple where God resides. A thumb all alone is just a thumb right? But the thumb doesn't do much by itself, but the thumb is part of a hand, and the hand is part of the body, and the body is essential to, or the thumb in in working all these parts is essential to the health of the body. The same is true with the body of Christ, and I think when we tend to read Hebrews 12, we read it like most of the other passages in the Bible, that it's a present imperative about me running the race, and we don't translate the English very well with second person plurals. So when it says you, in our English language, we don't differentiate between you singular and you plural. And so we need to, as as we read this Hebrews 12, 1 to 17, I'm actually going to try and read it to you as it would be more in the original language, which is with the you's as plural and the us's. And I'm just going to refer to them as church. Because it's us, and that's how it was given to the people of God. It was an exhortation to a church. And so let's hear this, not just for me to run well, but for us to run well as a church. That's more the idea of Hebrews 12. So let's hear that. 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, plural, all the people, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, plural, everybody, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that, or in order that you, plural, you church, may not grow weary or faint-hearted church, in your struggle against sin, plural, you, plural, have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses church, you, plural, as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. For it is discipline that you, church, have to endure. God is treating you, church, as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you, church, are left without discipline in which you've all participated, then you, church, are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, church, and make straight paths for your feet, church, so that what is lame may not be out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace or pursue peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root or bitterness springs up causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you, church, know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Let's pray together. Lord, we have need of endurance. We pray that we would not shrink back but that we would pursue by faith all that you have for us here in this text. Help us to run with perseverance and endurance as we look to Jesus. Pray that you would strengthen us, Holy Spirit, minister this word to us. May we hear and follow what the Spirit is saying to the church. We ask in your name. Amen. Well, we're looking afresh at this community project as we're gearing up for the fall and we're talking about these life groups and encouraging you guys to fill out the uh, survey that was sent out by email. And we'll be sending that out again, but we're trying to start to think about putting these people in groups for the fall. We recognize that there's, a, there's this community project 
of the scriptures, that nobody does the Christian life by themselves. We don't see that in the Bible. The Bible puts us into a body. We're baptized into a body. We're saved into a body. And this church is struggling as a church body. It was struggling with endurance. And the church is having a hard time here, wanting to run the race and getting tired. And so the church is being called here to lay aside every weight and the sin which uh, clings so closely. And this is important for us to hear because I think in our culture and context, the same thing is happening. Um, There's a recent article that was put out by Tim Keller, and it just was dropped this week, which is pretty amazing because he's going through through cancer treatments at NIH. Um, But he talks about these unprecedented times that we're in. I thought this is helpful just to be reminded of why we need church community and church renewal. And he says that the American Protestant church is in a deep need of spiritual and institutional renewal. The mainline liberal church has been in precipitous decline for 50 years, and only its historically accumulated assets of endowments and real estate have kept it from disappearing altogether. Now the conservative evangelical church is also in in decline and faces this enormous exodus, especially of its younger people. And he says the black church is facing many highly complex generational theological and institutional challenges. Never in American history has the church been weaker or has the American population been more disconnected from religion. Never have all the various branches of U.S. Christendom been so weak all at once. Even the Catholic Church is facing crises of shrinking parishes and shrinking numbers of clergy. And then he talks about the need in the country. And he says, with many secular voices, see this unprecedented deterioration of the church as an unmixed blessing. A number of analysts and social theorists point out that religion brings things into a society that cannot be supplied from other sources. Consensus of moral intuitions, strong community ties, meaning in life beyond material circumstances, and a powerful hope for the future. And then he talks about Robert uh, Bella in his classic book, Habits of the Heart, which came out, I think, like in the late 80s, but was revised in 2007. And Bella, he argues that the social uh, history of the United States makes it perhaps the most individualistic culture in the world. We, we are individualistic Uh, to the core. No culture more than the American culture elevates the interest of the individual over those of family, community, and nation. No culture more than the U.S. culture attributes one's character, identity, and life conditions strictly to individual uh, choices. And so he says, yet for two centuries, the religious nature of the American population counterbalanced this individualism, this radical individualism with denunciations of self-centeredness and calls to love our neighbor. So the church demanded charity and compassion for the needy. It encouraged spouses to stick to their vows and to uh, confine sexual expression to only inside marriage. But what Robert Bella is saying is now as the religion is declining, the guardrails are gone and we're seeing more social breakdown. And Bella makes the case that American individualism, now largely freed from the resistance of religion, is headed for social fragmentation, economic inequality, family breakdown, many other dysfunctions, which we are seeing and experiencing. And then he cites this other professor, Carolyn Chen, who's uh, at Berkeley, and she has this article called, When Your Job Fills In for Your Faith, That's a Problem. And her point is that as religion recedes, 
people are looking for a God or a faith substitute, essentially deifying their work. And she, and she argues that when people find their significance, their security and meaning in life in their work, it leads not only to workaholism and anxiety, but to ethical compromises, to a lack of community and civilization, and more of a dog-eat-dog, inhumane economy. Her conclusion is that as religion recedes, we make career and work into a new religion. When we do that, we all suffer. And so... The world needs the church. The church needs the church. We need renewal. We need one another. You think about the end of 3 John. I mean, here's a passage you just completely read over. But this is just the last three verses of 3 John. I have much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we'll talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. Just think about the significance of that. Today is, I'll post, I'll tweet, and I'll text, but I don't want to talk to you face to face. I'd rather not talk to you or hear you call. Just please only text or email And I don't hope to see you anytime soon. And I'm wondering how come there's no friends to greet and greet any friends, nobody by name, because we're losing that. We need these personal relationships. And so endurance is a challenge for any generation, not just ours. Reason is, is because the impediments are essentially the same. There are seven impediments that I see in, these, in this text. And I would say they're the same impediments of every generation, although they may vary in their look. But let's just consider those. Because we're all running a race. And we run the race together as a body. We're running this race. And if you think about running this race as a body, we all have these things of different weights that it starts off with in verse 1 that says, let's lay aside these weights. And we'll come back to what that is. But then you've got, and it's not sin. Weights are not sin. They're just things that can lead to sin. They're things that weigh us down. Then you have sin, and that's, that's a problem. That's going to keep you from running well. Then you have, in verse, and that's just verse 1. Verse 3, you have what I would call soft persecution. You have hostility and hardship from the world. That's verse 3. Then you have God's discipline of pain. We all have pain in our lives. And God is the one who's bringing that, metering that discipline into our lives. But there are things that can hinder us from running well. Then you have, verse 14, relational conflict. We're called to pursue peace with all men. And you wouldn't be called to pursue peace with all men unless there was relational strife that we all have to deal with. And then you have bitterness. Roots of bitterness that spring up, defile many. And then lastly, sexual immorality. These are, any of these seven can take you right out of the race. And the reason you need the body is to work through these seven things. How are you doing in these seven areas? So let's just kind of consider them together this morning. But I would encourage you, as you're in groups already, or you, as you're talking to people, even as you're talking around the, the table for lunch, what are the, which of these seven areas is difficult for you right now? 
Because first of all, we're called to, to lay aside every weight, and the weights are going to look different, right? But in running on a marathon, you want to get as light as possible. And in this day and age, they actually ran with no clothes on. I mean, they were literally as light as possible, okay? And some years ago, I may have told this story before, I was on this long bike ride, and one of the guys in our group, he got so tired on this lengthy bike ride, and we had this couple of mountain hills to climb, that he just had to walk. He just completely stopped. Well, he, it turned out, he, I mean, he had this huge backpack on. And we started unzipping the backpack, and inside of it were two water bottles that were like hiker water bottles, like at least 32 ounces. And one of them, if I recall correctly, was frozen. I mean, you want to talk about carrying some weight with you? Well, then one of these things was like sticking down and working as a brake. So as the wheel came around, it was dragging into this thing. No wonder we're walking. And literally, it was so embarrassing because we got passed with our bikes by joggers as we're walking our bike up the hill because I felt bad for my friend. And literally, these guys come jogging past us and eh, it's us. We had weights that were totally hindering us. Well, what are the weights that are weighing you down? How, and I would just say for us in our culture and time, if I'm looking around and being honest with my own soul, I think some of the weights are the way that we veg out with our time. The TikTok videos, the Instagram, the Snapchat, the YouTube, you look back on your week and you compare how much time you looked at that and then how much time you looked at God's Word and you just do it like this. How you doing? Because these things are so, they're, they're light and trite, but they're funny. And some of those will lead you into, into things that are inappropriate. But a lot of it is just, you're just nibbling on, on the junk food of the culture. But the weightier things of God's Word are being neglected because we're just like, they're, they're, they just keep coming. And so maybe some of these weights that you need to throw off, or I would just challenge you to think through that. There's several apps that I've just kind of deleted intentionally off my phone. Doesn't mean I don't, I still, apparently I have an Instagram account somewhere. I still have it. People say, oh, I sent you something on Instagram. I'm like, I don't even know how to get to it now. But, but I do have a Facebook account. And, but I don't even have the app on my phone. I go there online because I just want to force myself. If you want to go, okay, it's going to take a little work. You want to go to Bleacher Report, it's going to take a little work. You want to go to YouTube, deleted the app. So I have to just go there because I just have to think, do I really want to go there? Because I know when I go there, I can just spend 40 minutes, it's gone. It just poof. And so what are the weights that hinder your walk with God? Maybe you're becoming a workout warrior, but you're neglecting spiritual areas in your life. Maybe you're binging on Netflix and spending just too much time in front of a screen. Or maybe you're obsessing on your hobbies that don't make you any money, or you're obsessing on your career that does make you money, but now it's become everything. We have to recognize what are the weights. Then the sin, which clings so closely, and the idea here is this, it's clinging so tight, closely, it's like a boa constrictor. And, and Jesus is, describes it as weeds, which choke out the fruit in our lives, and sin is an area, any area in our life that we don't want God to reign over, any area where we don't want His Lordship. And it seems like it always begins in the thought life, but it moves to our actions and our pursuits, our temptation to want to self-medicate, 
from the pains of this life, whether it's abusing alcohol, viewing pornography, or taking prescription drugs? Are you trying to escape hardship through a sinful means? We need to remember Jesus. Matthew Mark tells us that, that Jesus, was, when he was on the cross, he's offered wine mixed with gall or mixed with myrrh, but he would not drink it. He didn't want to blunt his pain. He did not want to self-medicate. He was drinking another cup. He was drinking the cup of God's wrath, draining it to the dregs for us. And we're told here, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He endured the cross. He went all the way to a cross. As I was sharing with the kids this week in vacation Bible school, I mean, he experienced the water judgment. How did he experience it? Because when they stabbed him, out flowed blood and water. He, he drowned. His, his lungs were filled with water and blood. He endured a cross. He had a baptism to undergo, and he was in great distress until it was accomplished. And then he did take a little drink of, of wine to speak his very last words. I think it was so he could get the words out that it is accomplished. It is finished. And then he died. We have to get rid of the sin which clings so closely. Is there something that's just choking you? You got to get rid of it. And then the next one is hostility, the soft persecution. This is where we're told to consider Jesus who endured such, from sinners such hostility from himself. You see, the church is out of a step and out of alignment with the culture. And I'll illustrate this. A month ago, a little over a month ago, June 6th, Tampa, Florida, the NPR article is entitled, Tampa Bay Rays Players' Decision Not to Wear Pride Jerseys Stirs Up Fans. Here's the article. It was supposed to be a show of unity in support of the LGBTQ plus community for Pride Night at Tropicana Field. The Tampa Bay Rays wore special jerseys and caps sporting the rainbow-colored logo. Nearly every Tampa Bay player who took the field against the White Sox in the first inning did so with a rainbow-colored sunburst logo patch on his right arm and a rainbow-colored TB logo on his cap, Adam Berry reported. But five Rays players opted out. Jason Adam, Jalen Beeks, Brooks Raley, Jeffrey Springs, and Ryan Thompson peeled off the logo, wore the team's standard cap, according to Tampa Bay Times writer Mark Topkin. Adams told Topkin that while they respected the team's decision to show its support of the LBGTQ plus community, they opted out for religious reasons. A lot of it comes down to faith, they said. To... to it's a faith-based decision. It's a hard decision, but ultimately we all said, we all want them to know is that they are welcome and loved here. But he, but he continued, when we put that on our bodies, I think a lot of guys decided that it's just a lifestyle that maybe, not that they look down on anybody or think differently, it's just that maybe we don't want to encourage it if we believe in Jesus, who's encouraged us to live a lifestyle that would abstain from that behavior just like Jesus encourages me as a heterosexual male to abstain from sex outside of the confines of marriage. Florida, and that's what their spokesman said, he was a Christian. The Florida resident and self-described avid Rays fan, Matt Labard, said, Adam's remarks were disappointing. By using the word behavior, it's implying that it's a choice, and that's the talk of marginalization, and I couldn't agree with that. 
Labarge was one of the number of commenters in a feisty thread on the Rays' Facebook page. The team posted photos of people wearing t-shirts decorated with LGBTQ pride flags, rainbow colors, and words, baseballs for everyone. Now, we are at a step when we try to offer something different. Here's the irony. The irony is that many Major League Baseball stadiums have a faith night. And a faith night's where some of the Christians on that team will share their testimonies. A Christian band will perform. But it's always optional after the game. There's no sticker that's handed out to everybody coming in saying you got to be Christian. There's no logo that has to go on every jersey of every play that, a player that Christian faith is mandated now for all. But Pride Night's just the opposite. You must participate and wear the sticker or the logo or you're the problem because you're not being inclusive, even though they're being exclusive. We try to lovingly point this out. If we were to say, why can't there be a traditional marriage night and everybody wears that logo or sticker? Well, we think that leads to human flourishing. And, and you see, if you bring up that, prob- if that, you're the problem if you suggest that. But where people are checking out is people have friends that are coming out that are gay. It's happening more and more. And if you hold fast to what the Bible says, you are being labeled as you're marginalizing, you're mean, you're unloving, you're rude. You're not, you know, whatever you want to fill in the blank with. And many are saying this need of, you need this endurance because it's a long race. And now this race just started up a long mountain road. And it's going to get harder and harder to climb this hill together as a body because of this hostility. Number four. Number four is just God's discipline. God brings pain into our lives, and we're told again and again here, it's because he loves us, right? And, and he's reminding us again of this problem that I said last week that we probably already forgot, is last week we were talking about we have a retention problem. Do you remember how many times last week we had to say, today if you hear his voice, today if you hear his voice, you know, don't forget. Well, here he says, have you forgotten? Well, of course we've forgotten because we have a retention problem. We're here because we've forgotten half of, how much did we forget from last week? What did we say we would retain? 3%. But that if you talked about it, it would go up from there. But 3% is the average of what you retain. And some of you that are really good can get the 10 or 25%. But we have retention problems. And, and so the writer of Hebrews, so much of what he's doing is reminding them of things of old. So here he's bringing out Proverbs 3, and he's quoting a direct quote, reminding them that God loves you. The Lord disciplines the ones he loves, chastises every son whom he receives. And so as a parent, if you're in the neighborhood, do you discipline your neighbor's kids? Tom's shaking his head, no, why would you not do that? You'd get in trouble with the other neighbors and their parents. You only discipline who, Tom? Your own children, because you love them. And that's how that works, is that God calls out his own, and his own children, he's going to discipline them. And so, for us though, as we experience the hardships of this life, the difficulties of what we, we tend to equate God's love for us with how he is providentially providing the goodies for us. And when the goodies aren't being delivered, we think God must not love us. 
But in reality, from Scripture, and, and the, the Puritans used to say, there are two great fiery trials in this life. Adversity and prosperity, but the latter is far worse. Do we really believe that? There are two great trials in this life. Adversity and prosperity. I'm sorry, but the, the, yeah, the latter is far worse. I mean, prosperity is far worse because now you're going to forget about God altogether. But adversity actually weans us from this world, draws us into a closer relationship with our Lord. And John Piper has this distinction between discipline and repair. And he says, it's the difference between the surgeon who, implant, who plans the incision for our good and the ER doctor who sews you up after a freak accident. God is the doctor planning our surgery, not the doctor repairing our lacerations in the ER. So, meaning this was planned. It was his providence. And so he has the, the very reasons for things that are happening to you. I don't know all them. But I know he loves you and that he wants, he's drawing you to himself through these very things. They're being, all that comes to you is being metered out by a sovereign good and all-wise God. And he's weaning us from this world. Blaise Pascal has that great quote where he says, pain was the loving and nest pain was the nest the loving and legitimate violence necessary to produce my liberty. God uses pain to get our attention. And then we have this difficulty though, as Jonathan Edwards, one of his 70 re re um, resolutions, number 25, resolve to examine carefully and constantly what that one thing in me is, which causes me in the least to doubt the love of God and direct all my forces against it. You see, that's where number four comes in because the, the whole five to 11 is all about discipline for our good. And it, and it doesn't seem at the time that it's, that what can this be good for? This is painful rather than pleasant, but what does it yield? The peaceful fruit of righteousness, verse 11, to those who've been trained by it. So strengthen those, those drooping hands and those weak knees. And you, you picture this person running and his hands aren't even moving and his knees are weak and he, he needs straight paths for his feet. He needs level ground. He needs to be healed. And so then he deals with relational conflict. And he's called to run, pursue peace with everyone. Pursue it. And we're called to pursue a few things in the scriptures, right? Flee youthful lust, but pursue righteousness, faith, and love. We're, we're called to pursue certain things. Well, one of those that were things that we're called to pursue, and without this, nobody will see the Lord. This is the very holiness that he's saying is so key, is to pursue peace with all men. It's part of our running, part of our race. And yet there's part of us, a lot of us, that just wants to avoid conflict. I want to run away from people. It's easier. I just want to avoid this situation. I want to avoid conflict and be a conflict avoider. There will always be difficult and challenging people. And if you always avoid conflict, what happens is that you are actually bottling and storing up frustration and sharing it with others rather than the person you need to be sharing it with. And the Bible says we're to speak the truth in love to one another. And so when you're, when you're angry and you're upset and someone says, hey, is something bothering you? And you say, no, nothing's bothering me. What are you doing? You're lying. <laughs> and we're called to speak the truth to each other. 
So why would we do that? Because we're conflict avoiders, yet we're called to pursue peace with all men. And so we're called to, and if somebody is sinning against you, you're called to call that out. You who are spiritual, restore them gently. Go and show him his fault, you and him, you and him alone. That's where it begins. And so if you're not doing that, is something bothering you this morning? Is something causing you to check out of the race? Is there relational conflict? And if so, it leads to the next problem. And the next problem is bitterness. So instead of making straight paths for your feet, the imagery here is now a runner has run off course and he's running no longer on the path, but he's getting a little off the path where these, these roots. And when you hit a root when you're running, sometimes these roots are really big. And sometimes a root can just take you down. I remember one time just riding my bike in the, the ag park, and I hit a root that was so big, I went right over the handlebars. Bing! I didn't see the root in time. And I just ran into it, and over I went. Well... That's the imagery here, is there's nothing like this one. This is where I've seen more people tripped up in the Christian race, is they haven't dealt with relational conflict, but now they've become bitter, and now they're nursing a grudge, and they want to nurse this wound, and they feed it, but it's a poison they're drinking themselves, and you're never more like the devil when you're nursing a grudge and nursing bitterness. You're never more like Jesus when you're forgiving as Christ forgave you. But when you enter into bitterness, you're entering into a darkness that brings about so many other sins. And here, here it even warns us. It's, it's saying, which springs up, causes trouble. And, it's, and here it's individual. It's calling, the church is being called to, hey, all of you together, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. So help each other that no root or bitterness springs up and causes trouble because by it, many become defiled, right? So it, it affects lots of people. And usually when the bitterness grows, I mean, people just also leave. And they're mad. But here's the last one. And I'm convinced of this. I would say usually when I hear of situation of adultery, it's because bitterness was at, was at play. Notice the connection. There's a connection how sins feed other sins, right? The root of bitterness springs up, causes trouble. My, by, by it many become defiled that no one is sexually immoral and holy like Esau. You say, well, what's the connection? Well, here's the connection. I'm so mad at this person that I'm going to go sleep in another room. I'm so mad at this person, I'm going to go sleep with someone else. You see, that's how that works, is they weren't dealing with the bitterness. And now that the bitterness, not dealing with it, leads to, well, this other person is treating them special, giving them what this other person isn't giving them. But for a single meal, they abandoned their heritage like Esau. And the writer of Hebrews is giving a strong warning here. He's saying, as you're running this race, don't assume that you can sin now and repent later. That wasn't an option for Esau. It was over. So beware, you who think I can sin now and repent later. The remedy is to repent now and don't sin later. 
You see, so this is why we have to share this life together. This is a call to the church. We, have, we recognize we're all in this race, and there are seven impediments that are just being dealt with right here, and they're all real stuff. And this is where we say, man, how do we pray for each other? Interestingly, Scott Sauls makes the point, and isn't it ironic, he says, that support groups that offer no gospel actually have more success in helping people get free from addictions than people that have the gospel and no support group. So who has more success? Support group, no gospel, or gospel but no support group? That's pretty scary to think about, but the answer is you need both. You need gospel, you need friends, you need support group, and you work together as we grow up together as the body. We need each other. Let me pray for us as we come to the Lord's table together. Father, we are sobered by this text. We thank you for Jesus who ran perfectly, the only perfect runner of the race. He is our pioneer, the one who has passed through the heavens, sat down at the throne of God. We thank you that it is finished. The atonement has been made. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for interceding even now for your church. Help us, for we are weak. Help us to live our lives in community. As we come to your table now, feed our souls and remind us how good you are. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.